and let's break down inequality because it's another emotionally charged right. word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. And think about economic inequality, and then think about income inequality, wealth inequality, inequality of opportunity, uh, and consumption inequality. Real estate certainly has a role to play in being a positive solution to this. You are listening to the AFR podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. It's easy to overlook or forget how much real estate investing is influenced or even buffeted about by global forces. Of course, real estate is a local business. Every city, every neighborhood, every street corner is unique. And a lot of wealth has been won or lost based on those local factors. But the global forces have an astonishing tendency to disrupt the most finely tuned real estate plants. And that's why today's guest, who has spoken twice uh, at uh, two different AFIRE conferences in the last three years, uh, Dr. Alexis Crow, who uh, leads the geopolitical investing practice at PwC. Uh, before that, she was a managing director at uh, G2 Investment Group and uh, was also an expert at the UK-based think tank uh, Chatham House. Uh, so she frequently contributes to uh, investment print, radio, and television media uh, like FT, New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, uh, CNBC. It, it goes on and on and on. And then there's podcasts and everything else. So uh, she is truly um, a resource for all of us in the investing world. So um, I've asked you to be here today on the podcast to help members expand their views and uh, better tune their investment thesis. Um, so thank you, Alexis, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Gunnar. So, uh, well, why don't we start big uh, and, we'll, and we'll go from there. Uh, I, I think uh, the challenges we have facing today, us today are truly global challenges. Uh, they're affecting everyone in the world differently, obviously, in different countries. Um, and it is you know, impacting the supply chain. It's impacting political uh, connections, uh, all the stuff that, that you uh, study and, and, and bring to light all the time. Um, and it is impacting what we're doing locally. So so tell me, what's happening? Well, thanks so much. So I think firstly, uh, in terms of you know the trajectory of globalization, we've certainly entered a period according to which mobility is associated with morbidity. And we've had these two twinned health and economic crises experienced across the globe. To date, we have not had a financial crisis in part due to the, I would say, unsung successes and coordination of central banks around the world. Um, a lot of lessons learned and implemented in the wake of the GFC within advanced economies. And a lot of those techniques were pioneered uh, by central banks within emerging market and developing economies confronting the shocks related to the economic stops of COVID-19. So those efforts by the central banks that, yes, have been a, a stop that, that, that has helped us uh, kind of go forward. Why do you think, or is it just in the U.S., that we don't understand that it actually has helped us? I just think it's it's generally the, the you know, this is something that Mervyn King talks about. It's generally the fact that central banking policy is, you know, historically been conducted behind closed doors and, you know, Fed only started communicating its policies to the markets in the 80s, the Bank of England only recently. 
uh, you know, the PBOC recently as well. Um, and, and J.K. Galbraith covers this uh, very well. So, you know, it's it's the, the rare air of central bankers and their central banks and, um, you know, gold vaults and things. Um, but what I would say here is um, you know, that is a very specific debate that generally doesn't trickle down. And, you know, the other side of that could be also to be said is, although a lot of the reforms that were implemented in the wake of the GFC helped to instill financial stability, the people did not necessarily benefit from this. Right. So there were these pioneering techniques. Um, and, you know, what I think has been remarkable, too, is that you've been managed to keep imported inflation under control throughout the, you know, the first year and a half of the crisis. So for a central bank like in Indonesia and the Philippines, you know, a lot of these techniques were tested through the trade war um, and have had have held still. Now we combat uh, this conundrum of inflation. Right. And obviously this is front of mind for executives across the globe. We spoke about it at AFIRE a few months ago. It's it's I spent about 60% of my time on inflation, 40% on China, the rest, rest of world. Um, what I would say here is now central bankers are coming under fire as well as political um, leaders for inflation. And it is a tale of, of, of different geographies here where an argument can be made that inflation has largely been contained in Asia, across Asia and pockets of Asia, because the pandemic has been handled better. Um, Janet Yellen recently said, you know, the way to fight inflation is to fight the pandemic. So you referred to the supply chain bottlenecks. The IMF has actually recently downgraded its economic forecast for the U.S., which by the way, is not a rarity, but it has downgraded it this time because of supply chain bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. And if you think about 70% of our GDP growth in the U.S. comes from consumption, you know, you have similar things across Europe um, with these asynchronous reopenings of the economy and, and, and variegated shutdowns and lockdowns and shocks to demand and shocks to supply. It's a feature we're not seeing across Asia, um, which I think is important to be able to point out. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do also have a divergence, I would mm -hmm. say, on the headline side between price takers and price makers. Um, when we think about on a global basis, the fact that many commodity exporting countries could net net benefit from a higher commodity price environment. Um, so the ruble and the Colombian peso being right. the top two EM performing currencies this year. Um, uh, and then you start to think about okay, well, how does that trickle down into the income of the people is another question. Um, to what extent is an economy, even if it is a commodity exporting country, dependent upon um, you know, imports to be able to feed its people, such as Brazil, right. um, and combating imported inflation. So this is something I think right. is certainly top of mind for executives uh, in the real estate space. Obviously, it's something that many have confronted with, uh, with regard to producer price input inflation. Um, lumber back in you know 2020 right. and early 2021, eating into margins. Um, then we had aluminium uh, manufacturing. You had the semiconductor chip uh, shortage, etc. Labor shortage in construction, which in the U.S. market is no nothing new. Mm -hmm. um, we certainly, you know, many investors and developers faced those issues prior to COVID-19. It's obviously been exacerbated by the crisis, um, and the extent to which you know when we think about uh, you know, what has been referred to as a white hot housing market across the globe, 
uh, seeping into rent and an increase in, 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 in rental inflation for many households. All right. So I guess the two questions around inflation are, you know, you know, the, the, the Fed is saying it's not going to last. Um, is it going to last? Uh, would be one question on that. Um, and, and then secondly, uh, when, when we think about inflation, I find it kind of interesting that, that at least in real estate we've been dealing with, and many other asset classes, we've been dealing with asset level inflation, perhaps. I mean, I know that's a uh, notorious word to use, but it, it, it does seem that we have, a, we have an issue in terms of just how much it costs to live uh, going forward. So what are your thoughts on that? Actually, I would say the two questions are nicely interrelated, and it's helpful, I think, to distinguish between headline inflation core inflation, wage inflation, producer price input, and asset price. Um, and then also to distinguish between emerging market, developing economies, and advanced economies. On the headline side, first of all, we forecast continued volatility in commodity markets, in liquids, in fuels, in metals, throughout the end of 2022, looking to the beginning of 2023. So long as this virus and its variants are ricocheting across the planet, we will continue to have shocks to supply and demand. Um, you know, we've seen this elevated commodity price environment reflected in the price of oil. Um, and we've seen, obviously, nat gas futures in Europe trading over $200 a barrel oil equivalent. Um, you know, we're seeing that uh, you know, the Biden administration opened the strategic petroleum reserves here in the United States, which in my opinion, is not going to impact price that much. But in any case, an elevated environment into headline, which seeps into core inflation in some categories. So if we look at the latest data, the CPI data in the U.S., you know, where it's seeping into is in the cost of transport. And then you look at, you know, vehicles, which remember when everyone talked about the death of the car? Well, right. Yeah. Um, and so that seeps into what you're talking about is, you know, the discretionary spending potential and, and firepower of the ordinary household, where now a large portion of that is getting eaten up by transport costs. Um, so that's important and meaningful. Um, to the extent that that headline seeps into core, um, that's where things are manageable or unmanageable. Right. Um, so that's where you know the central bank in Brazil has had to Go, you know, they started 2021 at record lows in terms of interest rates and have had to do six consecutive rate hikes um, because of that headline seeping into core. On the core side of things, though, when you look at the U.S. CPI data and you strip out transport, you strip out even for different reasons, housing, rent, shelter as a form of rent, health care um, and food prices, you get a disinflationary reading. Right. And so that's due to a number of demographic trends, you know, what Larry Summers has referred to as secular stagnation, um, according to which the salary and the wages of a retiring baby boomer are not being met by the new entrants to the labor market. You have massive consumption inequality um, for, again, for the bottom parts of the income distribution, which are heavily distressed by the rise in housing costs, basic goods of living. Um, you have the gig economy, workers working less hours. Uh, we certainly have seen that with the decimation of hours across the globe. The ILO actually estimates that in 2020, the number of working hours lost is the equivalent of 255 million full-time jobs on a global basis. So this, feeding back to your, your comment about the Fed's comment, is transitory, which has become a four-letter word for many traders. Um, that is why... 
this, you know, the the pandemic related um, shocks to supply and demand seeping into inflation are deemed to be transitory and that you have a reversion back down to the mean lower for longer interest rates over the longer term in advanced economies. A little bit of a different demographic story in a country like India or the Philippines or even Brazil, where they have further to go down the trajectory of growth. Um, the labor shortage side of things and the connection to wage inflation, this is an interesting dynamic. We've never faced the type of labor shortage that we face today. Um, and if we look at in the US labor market where the record numbers of quits are happening, record, it is in white collar business and professional services and it is in blue collar leisure and hospitality. White collar, it's record burnout. People are sitting on an elevated financial cushion. They've had a psychological wake up call from COVID. You know, they say, you know what? I don't have to, you know, have a heart attack, like said a banker in London, et cetera. I want to spend more time with my kids. I want to go to Timbuktu when, you know, when the flying potential opens. I want to play the ukulele. Um, and on the blue collar leisure and hospitality side, I think a number of different factors here. You know, there's a whole debate we could have about um, disincentivizing the labor force through writing checks and stimulus checks. Um, what what I could also say is there is a fear of infection and a resident fear of infection. Um, and I, I we're having to watch, uh, you know, the labor market respond um, by stepping up in terms of comp. And we're seeing this in Europe and we're seeing this in the U.S. Um, to the extent that that's sticky, that's where you get a problem. But there is a policy debate going on, and this is very much at the heart of Jay Powell's comments um, as, as, as Fed chair, is that we did not have an inclusive recovery coming out of the GFC. The unemployment rate of African-American men was, uh, African-Americans was double that of white males still, you know, at the start of this year. So that's where things need to even out um, and become more inclusive. And so that's where this sort of age old debate is. Are you going to be aggressively focused on containing inflation? Or are you going to let more people, um, you know, inclusively recover? I I know it's an absolute dirty word in political circles, but you know there there is a call for redistribution, and, and not necessarily radical redistribution, but it's going to happen one way or the other. Um, and there are ways that are more disruptive to the world, and those that are less disruptive. In that you have a population that can't feed themselves and house themselves, even when they're working. Um, that. I mean, it's not as bad as perhaps uh, times of Dickens, but, you know, it, it is redolent um, of that situation. So do we want to have uh, – I'm actually heartened by people having to pay more for labor uh, in order to have workers there, uh, especially in, in, in the service industries, restaurant industries, things like that, where there's been a, a notorious underpayment for some period of time. Now, this may – sound radical, but it's really just from the standpoint of we need it to equal out. Everyone is disturbed. My investors are very disturbed about the inequality that is occurring. Um, are there other things that would be better to help create equality, uh, or not equality, but but to help more balance? Hmm. So let's, again, like we did with inflation, let's break down inequality because it's another emotionally charged right. word. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. And think about economic inequality and then think about income inequality, wealth inequality, inequality of opportunity, uh, and consumption inequality. And 
real estate certainly has a role to play in being a positive solution to this. As you point out, in the United States, a minimum wage has not been a living wage. Right. We have another dynamic, which is what uh, MIT professor uh, David Otter refers to as a faltering escalator of urban opportunity, according to which, since 1970s, in the United States, when we've become more of a services-oriented economy, all of these sort of gateway super mega cities have become cities of white-collar business and professional services, which have become prohibitively expensive to be served by blue-collar labor. Um, and so you've actually seen an erosion of some of those clerical jobs over time, in sometimes due to trade displacement, but in, in sometimes due to automation, et cetera. Um, and so a lot of you know the talent that would have been you know serving blue collar jobs has been moving out to rural areas all prior to COVID. Um, and so to the extent that you make housing, which is a critical component, affordable. For some of these people to work in these cities, that's that's absolutely important. Mm -hmm. um, so that's certainly one dynamic. What I would say is there are different debates about the solutions to some of these forms of inequality. Redistribution or distribution is certainly one favored by Thomas Piketty, and thinking about how you do that, do you do that via tax and taxation? Martin Wolf just ran a column, you know, in the FT talking about, yes, taxes absolutely have to rise, you know, and that's the debate coming out of COVID, certainly. Um, I'd also like to examine the concept of investment and investing in the things that enhance productivity and enhance an equality or uh, a reduction of the inequality and opportunity. So some of these in real estate also relate to zoning. And thinking about the opportunity, you know, Gunnar, you've been in Chicago and thinking about the opportunity um, for children in Chicago when they're able to, you know, the data very clearly shows, Raghuram Rajan has shown this, when children are able to be in a neighborhood where they are accessing strong educational programs from early childhood onward, their prospects to move up the income spectrum dramatically increase. Absolutely. So zoning is another, you know, dynamic of this as well. Um, I would say, you know, the investment in education in America, we make a $250,000 degree in liberal arts somehow desirable. Um, but many people, white collar and blue collar alike, who obtain these degrees still graduate with debt and no idea what they want to do with their lives. Right. So thinking about vocational training, tertiary education, the education of soft skills, I think is important. Managerial e uh, education for younger people um, as well. The other, the other bear in the room is healthcare. Yeah. And this is where in the U.S., you know, this really does, you know, dramatically, in, you know, contribute to consumption inequality. Nineteen percent of pre-tax income for the bottom part of the income distribution is spent on health care. Um, and so particularly when we look at the Fed, sorry, uh, the BLS data on this, you know, what the, which the Fed looks at, it's the hospital expenditure that's dramatically increased over time. And um, outweighs an otherwise disinflationary environment. So I'm, I'm a big believer in thinking about how do you incentivize and use growth-friendly fiscal policy to stimulate investments that would lead to greater growth overall. I, for one, personally am not a fan of UBI um, or, 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 or what you could call a negative income tax. Um, I believe there are other ways to, to enhance and to create a living wage 
and maybe that is a wage subsidy in a in a you know dramatically expensive area. Well, it's it's going to be difficult, but it's interesting to me that the conversation has never been this uh, robust uh, as it is right now, and I think partially just because what we're seeing and the and the, and the threats that we're seeing, and and you know a lot of a lot of real estate investors are looking at certainly they have. Uh, their finger on one at least one component in terms of uh, living housing, um, and are trying to invest in ways that make sense. But there also is a lot more discussion around uh, as part of ESG, and we talk about ESG in terms of the environmental component, which is crucial and important. And there's much more work to do, um, but there's a lot more interest in understanding how do I how do I help the block the community. How is it that my building fits in from a social perspective? And some uh, are doing, I think, some really fascinating things and some very helpful things that are net positive, not just from the standpoint of having a place to live, but having a place that helps support people's livelihoods, that helps people do well. Um, are you seeing much around that, or would, would there be anything that you'd advise when people think about the social part of ESG? Yeah, let's take, let's take each in, in, in turn. Um, firstly, on the environmental side, what I would say is it's obviously the easiest to codify, to report. Right. Um, it's the one that garners the most attention in the real estate and the built environment space. Um, you know, when we look at some of the numbers around, you know, carbon emissions, et cetera, from cement and, you know, thinking about the dramatic need for retrofittings across the globe, think about the Hotel Particulier in, in France and, you know, um, Christia Freeland in Canada talking about job creation from retrofitting is all exciting. I think when we look, since you and I last saw each other, um, we've had COP26, the first time there's been one day dedicated to the built environment. Um, you know, you have, you know, some peers in the industry really excited about this, you know, considering all the different dynamics from obviously an investment selection um, criteria, if you think about the impacts of climate change on a city like Miami, et cetera, um, thinking about you know, real estate as a service and technology and prop tech um, in terms of, you know, just in terms of you know, reducing the carbon footprint of a building in its operations. Um, thinking about the development aspects, clearly there are the reporting and then there's the offset dynamics, um, which I think are critical. Um, I think the one question we get asked about this quite frequently is, is all of this real or is it a flash in the pan and is it the next fair trade? And um, it certainly is real. And, and I think COP26 certainly underscored that, as well as all the commitments across the globe to build back better and the extent to which institutional investors are really committed to this. On the S side, anecdotally, there is uh, one investment strategist who has done his own tabulations of a billionaire's money across the globe. And he considers whether or not the money is clean or dirty. And according to this strategist, it is considered to be dirty if it's real estate. So I've put this question, you know, to some of the largest investors in real estate. I'm like, to, to, to what extent are you ready to combat this? Because if you think about one of the reasons, coming back to the asset price environment, one of the reasons why Resi has been such a desirable target is we've been sheltering in place, shopping in place, working in place, etc. Um, you know, Resi has a huge role to play. Our office and the future of the office, which we can come to as a huge role, but thinking about, you know, life sciences, uh, eventually senior living, you know, all of this is dynamic and related to growth. 
Um, but real estate still gets the bad rep. This robust uh, discussion with Dr. Alexis Crow, uh, which we recorded on November 30th, 2021, uh, was too long to have in one uh, podcast episode. Therefore, uh, we're going to continue this conversation again in the next episode where we'll be focused in on the UN Climate Change Conference on affordable housing, on uh, migration, an in-depth uh, discussion of secondary, tertiary, and superstar cities and how that might be changing, uh, and also polarization of politics and the added or changing risks uh, that we are all facing. So please uh, tune in for the second episode of the interview with Dr. Alexis Crow. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.